There is a snake in the garden. It comes not to offer fruit, but to poison it. But can you poison something that was already rotten? This is the question that both of tonight's movies encounter. The first by brushing up with it, the second by tackling it head on. Noir often is about characters lost in an indifferent society, driven to violence and crime by forces conspiring against them. There's a reason Lovecraftian horror so often draws on noir tropes. I can't think of a faceless old god scarier than capitalism, racism, patriarchy, and all the other hidden systems entrapping us all. Tonight we'll be looking at two movies where a destabilizing presence forces its way into the hermetically sealed worlds of the chosen of their respective systems. First, in the white hetero suburban ideal of the 50s, and then with the tech billionaire enclaves of today. Once violence comes into the mix, both movies argue the true values of each can be laid bare. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. I'd like to say that if you're seeing me, you're having the worst day of your life. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. It was his story against mine, but of course I told my story better. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Pilzer. And tonight, we've called an audible to do a quick release for Charlie McDowell's brand new 2022 release, Windfall. Uh, A tale of desperation over the course of many hours trapped together under the threat of violence at an opulent home. So, naturally, we look to 1955's The Desperate Hours as a pairing, which is where we'll start. Uh, That would be William Wyler's tale of escaped convicts invading the home of a suburban family. Shut up, Mr. Hilliard. Mystery calls you. You can't turn this on us. I got my guts good and full of you, Mr. Hilliard. Guys like you, smart-eyed, respectable suckers. You're afraid, aren't you? Yes, son. I'm afraid. And I'm not ashamed of it. Sometimes it's better to be afraid. Barge, you can't put off a showdown. Nobody wants a showdown any more than I do. But we can't get the poor slobs family massacred. Glenn, it can't go on. First the old man on the truck, then there's a school teacher. Now the guy out here. Somebody's gonna get wise. Oh, darling, we're not saved if anything happens to you. I will let you go. Ellie. That's the way it is, that's all. You do as I say. Our job is to help you and get away from here. Take your men, your guns, your lights and get away. There's been a murder in my county. The papers are beginning to scream. Now what do I care? My family's in that house over there. The Desperate Hours is a contained thriller written by Joseph Hayes, adapting from his own book and stage adaptation, and directed by William Wyler. But it's probably best known now as one of Humphrey Bogart's final roles, a last opportunity for him to get to play a heavy and show he still has that dangerous spark the camera so loves. Opposite him stars Frederick March as the patriarch of the family under siege by Bogart, 
and his crew. Uh, so personal experience with this movie. I had never seen it, never actually never heard of it uh, myself, but you were the one who suggested to pair with Windfall, which was great. So what, what, what was your previous exposure here? I have I've not watched it before. I heard of it, uh, but had hadn't seen it. I, I've watched a fair amount of Weiler. I realized I've at least at least ten, maybe twelve of his films. So so I've got a a good a good number of Weiler under my belt, and um, and he is he's just like even more so than Howard Hawks. He is just your classic workman director. You know you you know you're going to get something reliable from him. It's going to be very competently made uh at the same hand uh even the ones of his that are kind of in the classic territory aren't genuinely ones i'd count among my my absolute favorites Mm -hmm. uh but but you've got some listed out here best years of my life i just kind of was cherry picking here Roman holiday ben-hur jezebel little foxes i my favorite weiler is actually the harris that uh but that is that is all olivia de havilland she Mm -hmm. um she gives one of my favorite oscar winning performances in there no uh, yeah same like weiler is a stealth mvp um i agree that the movies of his that i've seen i haven't been you know huge huge cheerleaders for but i mean he knows how to make a movie like he knows how to make just a really solid well done movie that still has like a a, a sense of personality and perspective to it and isn't just plopping the camera someplace where all the characters are in all the actors are in shot you know uh, a little context we're in the middle of uh recording this slightly out of orders so in the middle of watching a bunch of movies uh for our first season which you'll be hearing about soon and because of the theme we're watching a wide variety of levels of quality when it comes to uh, the filmmaking and, and the directing, which really makes you appreciate when, you know, even if they're not like a quote unquote auteur, when somebody comes in, it's just able to say like, we're going to make some choices that serve the story and it's, you know, it's going to look good and and work well. And you're like, Oh yeah, this, you know, this, this is a talent in and of itself. Yeah. Um, and Weiler, Weiler is definitely um, very comfortable in the the realm of, of dramas, but he, he, he ventures a lot. Obviously mm-hmm. Ben-Hur is an epic, territory um roman holiday is as as classic uh, a, a romance as they get and um and, and so he can move around a little bit and and to get uh something like the the desperate hours where we are are literally mashing together two genres uh, i think is uh it makes for a fun juxtaposition and uh i'm i'm curious to to talk about uh <laughs> Not just the invasion genre, but but literally, it is like a, a noir invading a fifties melodrama. Yeah, it's so it's so bizarre. I mean, it really highlights how little the noir goes to the suburbs, right? Like maybe there'll be a scene or two where they're talking to somebody who knows something, who's left the life behind or is out there, but I feel like it's not really until I don't know. There's probably a bunch of movies that I'm not thinking of, but like lynched me in blue velvet feels like you know like when you really start to see noir going into like the american ideal in the suburbs i mean which this movie is starting to kind of deal with but i think ultimately backs away from whereas you know blue velvet just is like from frame one is like there's it's dirty under here there's yeah darkness darkness in the suburbs um and and this 
um, that this isn't quite interested in in exploring that, not not dissecting it on no. the level that Lynch gets to later. But well, I mean, even the fun, I mean, we'll get to the ending. But I think that to me, like it's it toys with it, and then it kind of backs away. I think, but um, but yeah, so a little context. So as I mentioned, the the opening there, uh, this is actually originally based off of a book. Uh, the same author who wrote the book also wrote the stage play, which was successful enough that they then went forward with also making the movie. Uh, and the, the original book is actually based off of uh, real events where a family was held hostage for uh, the, the Hill family was held hostage for a little under 20 hours. Um, but the Hills later disowned all of Hayes's work, uh, saying that they'd actually been treated very well and that, you know, it had been... Um, made more violent and and sensationalized for the sake of dramatic telling, which, you know, yeah, that's what dramatic telling does. And uh, it would have been a very boring book, stage play and film if it had been about a family being treated very nicely by a bunch of criminals. <laughs> Although, I don't know. I mean, I guess there's a different way to do it. It wouldn't have been a contained thriller if it had gone that route. Let's put it that way. Right. <laughs> um, and then also like a weird little... Uh, Asterisk, uh, Bogart's role in the stage play was played by um, Paul Newman. Can can you just picture um, how how different this adaptation would have felt with with Newman in that role instead of Bogart? And and Newman Newman is so um, is so physical. Um, he mm-hmm. whereas, whereas Bogart wears the world on his face um and and the danger comes from his expression of, but newman especially like like newman of this era like cat oh, on a yeah. tin roof he's just um he he's all masculine anger and, right I mean, it would have been it would have been a very different kind of menace i think you yeah. i think you hit it head on that that bogart is world weary and yeah newman would have just been like sexy and raw but also like at any minute it, it could turn on a dime. Uh, and also, obviously, it just necessitated a huge, I mean, not a huge rewrite, but a, a, a very different approach to the character in that, you know, we're talking about a guy who's like 30 or 40 years older than Newman. Um, right. Um, and really, between between Maltese Falcon and, and here, we're watching Bogart at, at either end of his uh, of his tenure as, as Hollywood A-list. Um, yeah, a solid is, 15 years, and then... There's one more movie after this, and then that's that's, that's it. it. Um, and and yes, he's he's aged since Maltese Falcon, but at the same time, he's he's not any he's not really any more an old man than he was than he was back then. He's weathered. He's he's had no, more yeah, life, but I mean, he doesn't he doesn't read as old and frail by any. No, there's a couple fights in here, and I, I buy it. You know, it's, it's I mean, it's it's analogous to analogous to. Um, you know, mid ultimately what ended up being mid-career Clint Eastwood, right? When Clint Eastwood was in his fifties and sixties and still doing crime thrillers and, and what have you in the nineties and early aughts, you know. Yeah, whereas that's a now good, that's a good comparison. Now you watch Eastwood in like the mule and you're like, oh, that old man's gonna break something. I mean, yes. Also still is very grizzled and, and can shoot you a look that'll kill you on the spot. But <laughs> I mean he I mean and I think his movies now are really starting to play into his very obvious age, the ones that he's starring in, but uh, but yeah, no, it feels much yeah, is, more like that. Is Eastwood like, our only? Is Eastwood our only uh, our only glimpse into a, even remotely into what an old Humphrey Bogart could have could have become? I don't know. It's so hard to imagine Humphrey Bogart as an old man. You know, I actually, yeah, I think that probably would have 
know, that feels pretty spot on, you know, more so than like a, a Dern, you know? Yeah. He, I, um, it's, it's wild. And it's wild to think that this is like the end of the line for him or very, very, very nearly, but yeah. Uh, um, but, but, you know, he gets to be back in, um, uh, back in the genre that that he has helped define only this time uh he uh he the the danger that is always kind of simmering underneath it, it is it's just there out in the open um and uh and and he's helped out by having uh by by having a, a bruiser uh accompany him by having uh kobish right that's, a, that's yes, his name yeah. um there to uh to in, inspire some real like physical dread like if you thought you could outwit humphrey bogart or maybe just get away there's this other um beast of a man that's waiting there to take you down yeah and it's interesting you know the dynamics within the crew that so it's these three escaped convicts um bogart his character's younger brother and then the third guy that they escaped with and they've picked this home in suburban Indianapolis. Take take the family hostage, and then wait for money to arrive that uh, Bogart's uh, flame has been holding onto for him. And once she gets there with the money, they'll leave and may or may not kill the family. And you know, I, I just thought of this as you were talking about um, the heavy. Uh, you know, in retrospect, kind of what it reminds me of is somewhat is the dynamics of Panic Room. You know where we've got the I family. Seen Panic Room. Hmm? I've never seen Panic Room. Oh, really? It, I no. mean, it is. Talk about a taut, contained thriller. That would have also been good to pair with. Uh, well, we'll say that for at some point. We'll talk about it, no doubt. But um, because you know, there you've got um, Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto, and I can't think of the actor. The third guy is like an actor who does, hasn't done a bunch, but it is these three guys who kind of somewhat forced to be together by circumstance to do this crime and invade this house. And so there is also that tension within the crew as well as tension with the family being held hostage within the home. Um, so, I mean, actually panic room would have been a good pairing with the desperate hours. I don't know that it would have paired well with windfall, but um but no, just anyway, just made me think of that that dynamic. I think that helps with the drama of the the piece is that you're not just seeing the two sides; you're also seeing you know many different avenues of of conflict that can arise as they're all kind of stuck in this space. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely, and I think that's that you you're while you're waiting for a cash drop, um, you're stretching time out, and you've got to create uh, uh, some different points of tension within. So having having that uncertainty in uh, in the cruise dynamic is a, a huge part of this, uh, and 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 I think helps. Uh, but we have to remember that this is this is still this is two genres being kind of forced into collision with each other, and um, and it's the the noir genre that's that's off their home base. They're yeah. they're the ones that are destabilized. Well, I mean, it's literally, they filmed the exteriors at the same house as they used for the exteriors for Leave it to Beaver. So, it, I mean, it is, right. uh, there's a, a metatextual allusion to the epitome of 1950s suburban culture. And, and so, yeah, and then all of a sudden, 
like I said, the snake in the garden. You know, you've got these three cooks, who, crooks who um, force their way into the house and start destabilizing things. And you know, part of it is the violence and the threat of violence, but also, you know, the so the family has um, a daughter who's I don't know, like eighteen to twenty, something like that. Um, so she's still at home, but she's going out on dates. But she now she's also interacting with these men. Um, and then there's also this thread of March's character, the, the, the father of the family. He keeps talking about how, like, now I get, before this had started, I, I would never would have understood how you men do what you do. But now that you're here and threatening my family, I totally understand violence. Like, he's sort of saying, like, you brought violence into the home and now I am kind of succumbing, you know, like I said, the suburban melodrama is coming to the noir influence that has invaded its home, essentially. Yeah, I think um, and that's, it, it's such a, a great line to draw there. Uh, and, and this, this 50s idealized genre is something that it, it feels so, it, it feels so made up in, I think, a lot of people's heads it feels like something that didn't really exist but then then you know you do think of leave it to beaver and you you think of like that that is not something that we invented after the fact that was that was a a depiction of the american yeah. family that was being put out during during this time and this obviously with the, the house being the the same there I, I don't know i don't know how intentional that is as a as a connecting point but it's there uh, and uh, yeah, I imagine it's more, it was a cheap suburban California location that yeah. you could easily get access to. Like, you know, location scout was like, oh, I know a place we can get. Because um, also, you know, I mean, like Leave to Beaver was a big hit, but also it was one of many TV shows that are on at the time, right? Like, but it's, especially now, I think it is, and you're totally right, that it's a contemporaneous depiction of the ideal. But I think also because Leave it to Beaver has been the one to survive and so has sort of become... Emblem, truly emblematic of the entirety of like not just the sitcom in that setting but the the whole concept it just adds to that sense that disorienting sense of like what is noir doing i mean almost if it had been on purpose it would be something akin to the more modern like um uh meta sitcoms like kevin could go fuck himself or too many cooks where it's very purposefully invoking that that suburban ideal and then being like, but something is wrong. Um, you know, so no, it's it's interesting. Like I yeah. think it's, it's like sort how, of a crude accidental power as a result. How how much of that, how how much of that that fifties um fifties idealized um suburbia is is created retroactively and how much of it was was there? Um, in the moment when this movie is occurring mm-hmm. and and analyzing it, and it's really easy to get lost in that, and uh, because so many, so much of that's moved well into the realm of parody, um, true, and true, and so it's hard to hard to step back. But clearly, this this movie is interested in throwing those two things up against each other, and and it, and it's so it's so different from everything else we've been watching for the the upcoming season. Mm-hmm. Uh, because whereas many of the movies that we're, we're covering are all very, uh, very plot heavy. Um, they, they jump around, uh, it, within a given city. Uh, they, this, this confines itself, uh, 
not entirely, but uh, largely to, to a specific location. And, um, and that location is, is not a dark alley or a retreat or a, or a, uh, or a penthouse that is, uh, or a hotel room or a detective's office. It's just a, a classic suburban home. White picket, like little white picket fence. Yeah. Uh, you know, the reason he picks it is because there's a bike left out front and that means it's, fa- it's a family with kids that feels pretty safe where they are. Uh, and that makes them easy pickings, which I'm sure also is on a storytelling level, a very pointed and clever conceit of just like preying on the fears of the intended audience, right? You know, it's the same reason that, um, it's the same reason now or not now, but 20 years ago, like the strangers is, is sort of dealing with the same thing, except it's purely in a horror format rather than in the, the noir thriller mold, but the same sort of like anybody could be home. Anybody could just be living their life. And then this thing comes and invades your house. And I think that kind of like is, is part of the appeal. Um, but no, yeah. And uh, kind of returning to what you started to talk about with, you know, we've, we've the two leads here, you know, Bogart and March. I just find it really interesting. Bogart is, is positioned as the man of action, the man of violence, uh, definitely drawing on, again, the 15 years of him being a leading man in these kinds of movies. I mean, even longer, really, like what, uh, High, High Sierra's 40, 39. Um, so it's yeah, been... It's 40. So yeah, it's been about 15, 16 years of him being this kind of this kind of character. And then March is very explicitly kind of put in a spot where he's um the way I the way I saw it, each character is applying stress on him to either act or submit, right? Like the wife is always going, don't do anything, just give them what they want and they'll leave. And the son is, meanwhile, keeps going like, dad, why aren't you being a hero and punching him, right? Like the son keeps trying to, um, like the son thinks that he's in Home Alone and is trying to get rid of them and, and taking action himself. And um, so, you know, I think these are the, the vectors that are kind of applying force to him in terms of, on the one hand, sort of a very classic idea of masculinity as throwing punches, which is the noir, a lot of the noir ideal. And then on the other hand, you've got the, um, you know, I think the wife is sort of a civilized suburban idea of, you know, we've left the city. This is not who we are. We're, we're supposed to be a, a safe world. Um, you know, that's what the cops are for. And so I think it's very, and I think that all kind of comes to head with the, his choice to return to the house with an empty gun and using Bogart's reliance on violence against him because he knows that Bogart will take the gun and that Bogart will assume that it's loaded because that's what he would do. And so he'll now actually have the upper hand by, um, by turning Bogart's personality and, and like masculinity against him. Yeah, it's such a it, it's a a great character choice, and it's the the perfect way for this kind of movie to to wrap itself up and resolve that um, that those two genres that are are coming to a head uh, in the final moments 
Um, but I love that choice and uh, it just felt like the logical way to, to have it all wrap up. Yeah. So then overall, you know, returning to this, it, it, I don't know about you. I definitely could feel the staginess. I mean, it opens it up a bit and it goes to some other locations that definitely weren't in the stage flicks. I can't imagine doing, you know, an extra five second scene set someplace else um, with just like the teens going to pick somebody up in a car or something like you know, stuff like that. But it's, it's definitely still, I don't know, 80% in the house and, um, and, and very and predicated on can... like keeping them there. That, that can work. Uh, and, and, but I think, uh, I think this genre, I think the invasion genre is naturally a, a fairly stagey one. I do think that they did a pretty, uh, pretty solid job. Uh, Weiler and, um, and, and Lee Garms uh, uh, in establishing uh, a sense of space within the house. There's, there's a, a really great shot where, um, where, um, uh, the daughter is on the phone in the um, in in the main hall, and you can see the entire the entire family and, um, and and the convicts all lined up between behind her and up on the balcony above, and just, no, I mean, they, just uh, yeah, sets the mood really nicely. Agree that the both of them really do a great job leveraging the space. I, I think the directing actually yeah does a really nice job. Uh, the first floor landing from the stairs going up to the second floor, they they really love taking advantage of. So you've got a real sense of space there. And like I said, the kitchen has like a pass through window, so you can um, shoot through multiple space. Like they really do a, a good job arranging it so you can see into multiple spaces at the same time and play with information that way. I think to me it was more the writing, right? Like to, to a certain That's extent, it, it yeah. is the all right, they're here. We can't let them leave. Or if they leave, they have to have very specific reasons that they can't do the thing. You know, it, there's just sort of that. And I think part of it too is, you know, this is this movie is 70 years old and I think it's still very enjoyable, right? I, I don't want to undersell it. But I also think technique of storytellers of doing this kind of story has evolved a lot since then. And so I think there's a specific place where the age is kind of working against it, where you can just sort of see them being just not not quite as adept at hiding the strings here yeah and and in fairness um when you're watching a stage play there's things that just the artifice of of being in a theater you you're inclined to discount you're not gonna you're not gonna mind writing that forces people to stay on the, in that box right sure. but but it becomes much more obvious in a, a setting like this where where uh where where you question where you question and pick apart at things that you would never think to um, when they're on a set. hundred percent. But, but again, I don't want to undersell that it's still a very solid movie and a good, good noir and a good watch. Agreed. Uh, all right. Well, I think that brings us to part two of our conversation, 2022's windfall. This guy breaks into my house. Holy. And you just sit down on the couch. Okay. But how about you, you let go of my wife first? And I've had to hold his hand. How does this open? Is there a trick to the purse? No. There's a clasp. And help him rob us. I want $150,000. You think that's enough? Yeah, I think you're probably going to want more than that. I can get you the money tomorrow. What? What? Me. I owe you something, right? You owe a death to a hell of a lot more people than just me. Try being a rich white guy these days. It sucks. <laughs> Do you want to be me? Is that it? You're pathetic. 
I don't think you're going to do anything. Ever. You need to get close to him. Do whatever it takes. That's it. Your life is picture perfect. Picture perfect. Nothing feels fair. You have everything and I have nothing. something that jeopardized me get into the office right now i didn't take anything that wasn't mine you're not a killer what you think you have to do next please don't cross that line it's gonna be a long night Windfall is the new Netflix film directed by Charlie McDowell from a script by Justin Later and Andrew Kevin Walker and based on a story by all three plus Jason Siegel. Siegel plays Nobody, a robber who breaks into the desert vacation home of tech billionaire Jesse Plemons and his underappreciated wife, played by Lily Collins, both of whom come back from, to their vacation home unexpectedly early. As all three sit and wait for the money, Siegel's extracted at gunpoint from the couple the mounting stress and sleeplessness force conflict to the surface. All right. Well, clearly this is a new movie and it's the first time that either of us had watched it. Correct. You know, Charlie McDowell, did you and I go to see the we one that did. I did? I was just, I was going to, I was going to mention that. And he, that was one um, of the worst film Q and A's I have ever been to. It was, it was not a good film. Q- it was Charlie McDowell was there, right? Yeah. Charlie McDowell I, and, and, um, and, uh, and uh, Mark Duplass. Yeah. And Mark Duplass. Yeah. They were great. The questions yeah. were awful. I mean, question. the questions were the most stereotypical, like a film student standing up and being like, this is a question, but really I'm pitching you my movie or like, can you read my screenplay later? I was just like sitting in my seat, yeah. cringing on their behalf because they didn't yeah, realize. Not, not, not their fault oh. in the least, but I, were I super remember. basic questions where you were like, bad questions. did you watch the movie? Like people literally being like, uh, so why did this happen? You're like, so you didn't pay attention to the scene. And it, it's a good movie. I think we both really enjoyed um, the one that I love. Yeah, I li- I liked it. Um, so so I was excited to to get to see. It's another was contained, fear contained movie. That one's mm-hmm. sci fi instead of uh, you know sort of noir with, home with, invasion here. With with three with three actors who uh, I genuinely uh, I, I like all of them, and I, I I feel like with all of them, I'm still I I I want I want them all to have good roles. And and Plemons mm-hmm. has gotten some great work lately, but I I want. I want Lily Collins and and uh, uh, and Jason Segel to to get more good work. Yeah, I mean uh, Plemons. Like I can't. I'm very excited for his uh, Scorsese uh, Kills of the Lowest Moon, which I guess we'll cover because it seems like it's gonna be right up our alley. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean my uh, my wife frequently watches Friday Night Lights, and he's great. In it, but we just constantly. A, the like one day this kid is going to be like the leading man for Martin Scorsese is, is just wonderful. Like you just root for him. I, I think he even now at being one of the most in-demand actors working and a f- fantastically talented one, he still feels like such an underdog. Fun, fun, fun fact uh, about two years ago, maybe um, uh, I, I was at a very random bar in New Orleans that I've only been at twice, and uh, and him and and Kirsten Dunst were sitting down the bar, uh, which was cool. It was not; it wasn't even like downtown or anything. It was just a random divey uptown bar. They uh, seem like lovely people. Yeah, they seem great. Uh, so, um, so 
Overall, this is not a Jesse Plemons it is fan not. cast. It's not. Uh, Lily Collins is is married to Charlie McDowell. Uh, oh, I, I did know that. Yeah. Uh, I, I I think it um, came after they shot this, presumably, because it mm. seemed like it was a pretty recent thing. But um, well, hopefully, he keeps giving her giving her roles. Uh, yeah. Stuff to do. She's got a good noir face. I, I feel like she. Oh, totally. She, belong, like, she belongs like, in this kind of uh, environment. Um, no, definitely. Like, uh, what's her name in Nightmare Alley last episode? Kate Blanchett. Yeah, Kate Blanchett. Um, yeah, just that that right level of angularity where you where just it's beautiful but deadly. You're just like, yeah, okay. Um. So yeah, so the movie itself, you know, again, we're seeing a situation where an outside stabilizing force, this time Siegel, enters with violence. He's taken the gun from the home. And when, as I mentioned, when the family, arri- the, the couple arrives unexpectedly, he ends up taking them hostage and, and extracting after a, a, ser- a, a long debate and negotiation, ends up extracting $500,000 as the, the final amount that they agree on, right? Um, yes, after much back and forth. Right, about like the logistics of, of how much money weighs. Right, how much money weighs and how quickly it can be taken out and what's going to raise alarm bells and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so then again, we're in a situation where they have to they have to sit and wait for the money to arrive. And that's what's keeping them all trapped together. So it, it ends up being a very similar structure to Desperate Hours in that sense. Um, yeah, and again, we have a, a hired hired hand around the house who gets killed as part of the process. This time, accidentally, but you know that is the the f- poor unfortunate victim here. In the we mentioned in the, in the desperate hours, the garbage collector ends up getting taken hostage as well. Tries to escape and is shot by the uh, by the, the the bruiser on the escaped convicts team. And here, the gardener, who is just trying to, is just so proud of his garden. So, and just, he, he has this beautiful tree he wants to put in. He's got a sketch. He, and uh, then he also tries to escape and then trips and falls and nearly decapitates himself on a glass door. To, to me, that moment, I wish that, that it had come maybe 20 minutes earlier in the movie. Mm. Uh, because because this, is, this is also a movie about waiting, but unlike Desperate Hours... Um, that uh, this has been a three-hander up to to the arrival of the gardener, and there's not there's not a whole lot of of new developing tension throughout. I was but, expecting you know, so there's a moment at the midpoint where, and again, as I mentioned, there nobody nobody's sleeping. Siegel can't go to sleep because he has to keep an eye on them. They're too wound up to go to sleep, and there's a moment where. Siegel and Collins are alone together. It's the first time that they've really been alone together, except for when the couple first come home. And when the couple first comes home, Lily Collins walks in, Siegel goes, shh. And then we cut to Plemons walking in on them with Siegel threatening Collins. But we don't see the conversation that happens in between there. So at first I was thinking that it was going to be revealed that this is a you know a, a con on Plemons because it's also very clear that the, the two of the married couple is not very happy and and I agree I felt like at that moment I was like this is where we're gonna kick into another gear and it doesn't it just sort of stays in this very affable like quirky crime you know yeah it's, a, it, it's at least two-thirds of the way through the movie before we get the um the the gardeners uh abrupt 
exit. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and afterward there's, there's, uh, um, there's a threat. There's genuine tension because now there's a body. Right. And, but I, but I don't think that something like that is, was really a necessity in the same way for the desperate hours because, uh, because between Bogar and, uh, and Kobish, uh, there's there's legitimate menace whereas jason sigel is he's a doofus right Right. i mean like part of it again in the same way that bogart brings with him 15 years of playing the heavy siegel brings with him 15 years of being you know forgetting sarah marshall and how i met your mother being the tall likable goofball and there's not it's playing into that too right like there's not a mistake and i think that sort of gets an interesting contrast between the two is that the 1950s idea of masculinity are represented by, you know, this violent action forward criminal and the suburban father who is still in control. He just rep- represents a different form of masculinity that ultimately it argues is just as valid, if not more so here, neither of these dummies are in control. Like that is the point. The operating point of this movie is, you know, seagulls in over his head and is making it up as he goes along. And it's sort of an escalating series of bad decisions that are somewhat forced upon him, but also somewhat chosen. And Plemons is, as is often the case these days, a a tech so-called guru who is just completely disconnected from the world and how it works, how to relate to another human being. So, so let's talk about, let's talk about that because that's where, just like we have the um, the the fifties suburban fantasy colliding with noir in desperate hours, here we have um, we have the the tech the aloof tech billionaire uh, and and his um, the entitled know, twit exactly his remote estate. But we have that um, running up against well a form of a form of noir. Just like I don't know that in the moment, I don't know how much in the moment in the 1950s you think of that that suburban fantasy as um, as being a genre. Uh, I right now I think we're just starting to realize how much like this as more and more films and TV series mount up about the you know sure the, and this uh, is landing right in the midst of you know contextually for those who maybe are listening to this many years from now windfall is being released at the same time as we crashed the Theranos one that I can't think of the name of right now the super pumped the uber yep. one about uber you know so there's a bunch of um, content about tech you know unicorn startups that's that's happening that this is sort of in conversation with but i think the difference between the desperate hours and here is that windfall is much more conscious and pointed about the politics that it's and the moment that it's engaging with right like i think this is very purposeful commentary about that in a way that i'm not sure desperate hours is as much in part i think because windfall is much more critical of the thing that's engaging with than the desperate hours yeah. Uh no, I think that's uh, I think that's very true. Uh it's and, and and it's also uh in in the most in its most expected beats. Um uh, it is exactly what what you expect from from the get-go. This is about a a marriage that is strained to 
to the point that um, that there there's no surprise that it's going to utterly implode by the end. Uh, that's that's so well telegraphed, and you know, with only three with only three characters in it, uh, I think looking at it also just through the lens of uh, of a doomed relationship with uh, with a uh, a toxic husband that is um, that that is calling the shots, and uh, I, I think you you know you know what you're in for. For sure. Uh, yeah. Also, I think another thing that it, it is signaling from the front from the get go is the that it is calling to noir. I felt like with the like just the opening music and title cards displayed over. I mean, the font like all of it felt yep. very purposely as a throwback to so true uh, this this era of classic noir. Yeah, in a very like um, fun right. way, right? Like it's not like a. I wouldn't say it's calling back to like desperate hours, but it is. I don't know. There's something about that music that felt very familiar. No, you're totally right. And even the even the setting, even though we're we're not in the middle of a city, this is this is very much in keeping with the um, the the kind of lush retreat that. Oh, I mean, uh, the, the, you know exactly the. Um, this is this is where the the elite go um, to um, to be reclusive from the rest of society. Like this, um, it's a playground for, for just inviting vice to come in there. Yeah, and I think it also plays to a strand of noir that is 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 really fascinating to me of of that mounting bad decisions slash indifferent universe vein that the Coen brothers are masters of, of tapping into, you know, so it kind of reminded me of a simple plan, which is Coen brothers adjacent with Sam Raimi directing, you know, a couple of older noirs, quicksand and side street. that are both about, you know, one bad decision at the start. And by the end, you know, it's life or death, but it, it all starts with a small insignificant choice. And it just kind of spirals out of control from there. Uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a really interesting aspect of noir that kind of gets this feels a little bit more nihilistic. Not that I think I don't think Windfall is necessarily nihilistic, but I think there is that that element present that's sort of a the darkest, grittiest, most dour noirs tend to still have some kind of moral stance in the universe. You know, like as a narrative, there is a moral moral imperative that that is working on the story. But with these, it feels much more just like the universe is filled with chance and sometimes breaks don't go your way. Detour, and, and I, I think put, that, I that, that bucket oh, as well. Oh, definitely detour. Um, it's interesting that no one, no one here is named, right? So mm-hmm. um, everyone feels a little bit at arm's length from us. Um, I, L- Lily Collins, I guess, comes across as the as the sympathetic one in the mix because um, because she's the one trapped in a in a toxic marriage and and she's not a interloper that's invaded their their home so she she naturally comes away looking the best so you're you're rooting for her above the other two uh, which is convenient I guess yeah finally you know the last thing to talk about here is the ending um, and when we finally, as you were saying about Lily Collins, you know, finally she gets to take action and take ownership of the film by killing everybody. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and and it feels it it feels good. It feels earned. Um, she's she's the most sympathetic of the three, and mm-hmm. and, and you want you want something good to come of it for her. And that's why it's not a, I don't think it's a nihilistic movie. Um, no, I, think I would it, agree. This it, I don't think it's a nihilistic one. The, the person that deserved to, uh, to get a better life out of it is going to get that chance. And, um, and, and the, the people who were, uh, well, morally questionable are right. no longer in the picture. More, more compromised. But I also, I don't know, I would have loved, I felt like even in the scenes that she was in, we were still more on, the point of view of either Plemons or uh, Siegel. And maybe that, you know, is a thematic intention of we are aligning with them because they are both viewing her in a certain way, which is what allows her to take action in a way that they don't expect. Um, and, uh, you know, to the nihilistic point, uh, maybe not nihilistic, but the uncaring universe part, you know, the payoff of Siegel's shoe constantly being untied is that's what it does. And again, feels like a very Cohen esque yeah. touch oh that's a that's a cohen touch for sure uh but uh i i know i hadn't i hadn't known where they were going with that when they mm-hmm. continued to to show it but yeah it makes makes right. perfect just sense when they bring it back that way the littlest of things can undo you yep and then she just takes the gun and walks in and shoots her husband multiple times yeah sure uh, why not? uh so yeah pummins bites the dust quite a bit doesn't he i feel like he he's yeah he dies in jungle cruise and lots of stuff yeah. uh, sorry if i just run ruined jungle cruise for anybody oh no he's he is uh, a highlight of that movie he is a lot of fun he, he is the highlight of that movie he was the highlight of game night um True. Uh, that there there's another there's another one that oh. i had low low expectations i mean he was for, great in game night i don't know that put him as the highlight because so much of that movie worked i yeah. I, I highly recommend game night all around but plummins is one of the many pleasures of that movie yes uh yeah no doubt about it that that's a movie that is punching above its weight yes there's also such a great throw like old school studio comedy that has some thought and craft put into its jokes and structure and setups and payoffs and not just you know it was a it was it was a pleasure to see that kind of comedy and see it done well yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's neither here nor it's, there. It's, we're in a different genre altogether. <laughs> uh, again, we're reverting back to the Plumman's uh, Appreciation Podcast. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's just uh, wrap it up here by talking about the two of these movies together and, and what they're kind of saying to each other. Yeah, um, so so clearly a lot, a lot of similarities in the beats. Um, we, we've kind of covered that as we've moved through uh, but but I do think that it's really it's really interesting to watch noir um, uh, noir take a, a bit of a holiday and be uh, and be run up against another genre and and, and uh, unstabilized off its own footing a little bit uh, mm-hmm. pulling pulling our noir protagonists away from the city away from Los Angeles away from. Um, the the shadows that they know so well and and dropping them into another into a stranger's house um, and that stranger's life and what's going on there um, it's just a a fun uh, a fun way to look at at all of these tropes through a different lens no absolutely that's a really nice way to I hadn't thought of either of these movies in quite that way but I think that's a really nice way into them and I think that there's an interesting thing because these two movies do 
sort of use a very similar basic structure of, you know, invade the home, take them hostage, wait for the money to arrive, bursts of violence to escalate stakes and, and, um, and then resolution. The, um, I think it's interesting to see the two different frameworks of society that are being interrogated in both, right. In that, the you know, in the, in yeah. what, what is sort of seen as a power center and what's seen as a power center in the first is white suburbia and American home, the American home dream. uh, Yeah. You know, that is, that is the, it is representative of a place that you're least likely to find desperate men to find desperate hours. And then here that, that violence uh, is invading the, the, the world of tech billionaires and someone I, who's supposed to be overlooking everything who's supposed right. to be um supposed to be behind the curtain absolutely so i think it's just a very interesting mirror to society element of it of you know over the 70 over 70 years where where has that sense of control and power moved to um because you know it used to be that everybody lived in the suburbs including the the, the wealthy because also at the time ceos only made you know like 50 times their lowest paid employer employee not 350 times their lowest paid well, employee well we're we're um in our our next episode um going to pretty quickly uh watch as 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 the uh as the working man goes head to head with with forces well beyond his pay grade and uh and, sure. and watch that kind of clash in uh in very explicit action very true uh, so yeah, no, it's, I think it's, you're right. It's a great, great segue into our, our next episode. But before we get to that, uh, what's in the box? Uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, and this is uh, to you listeners, a new segment, although we've been doing it for a little while now, but I just realized that this is the first episode that you're going to hear where we're doing it. Uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, uh, we talk about something that we recently watched that's so good, it deserves to be glowing in the suitcase uh, and potentially capable of nuclear holocaust. So... <laughs> Tristan, what's in the box for you? Oh gosh, I've seen I've had a good a good run of viewings lately. I got to, I rewatched In the Mood for Love, which is delightful. Um, just what what a what a beautiful beautiful movie. Uh, got to uh, catch up with another round uh, with Mads Mikkelsen, which is a delight. Mm-hmm. Um, loved that. Uh, uh, saw. Uh, I, uh, saw uh everything everywhere all at once uh and 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 loved that to pieces as well but um what i watched last night what i'm what i'm gonna i'm gonna specifically call out here what i watched last night and and found to be um just a a damn delight uh is a bollywood film called om shanti om it uh is um you know a it is a bollywood it is a bollywood musical that is in love with bollywood musicals that is that is about a uh about an uh a struggling actor in the the 70s um who's trying to make it big and uh and when tragedy befalls him we jump 30 years into the future when he has been reincarnated and uh and and is unraveling his murder uh and and there's some really great over-the-top set pieces. There's some marvelous music. Um, it, it it was uh, such a 
thrill and I love Bollywood in general. So kind of uh, already in my wheelhouse, but, um, but it, it brought a, a smile to my face right up into the point when I realized I was crying at the end. Yeah, all right. No, I saw your review on Letterboxd. I'm definitely going to have to give it a watch. Uh, for me, I did just watch everything everywhere all at once. Agree. Great, great, great. Everybody should go see it in theaters. Um, but I'm going to plug, uh, I just finished reading the Buster Keaton new biography, Camera Man. Uh, and it's quite good. It's sort of an interesting look at both Keaton and how he is a good lens for viewing the changes at the start of the 20th century and also the development of the film and TV business and the changes that that went through and how these all these things intersected together, which in turn has inspired me to go back and watch a lot of Keaton. So I uh, recently watched Sherlock Jr. And oh, yeah. just so good. Just so much about the inventiveness of the set piece and uh, the bits are legitimately funny and surprising and incredibly technically accomplished you know i mean also as a as a cinephile a movie that's essentially the lesson of it the 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 idea of it is everything i ever learned i learned at the movies down to the final moments it 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 resonates i i love that you that you called specifically sherlock jr out i was doing uh the the other day i was i was doing a little mental exercise uh, and asked myself like if i if i had to, to give someone who who was interested in watching more movies, but didn't know where to start. If I had to give them like 10 movies that I thought would, would be like a good starter kit for them. Sherlock Jr. was the one I was going to start with. I um, totally get it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, cause it's, it's a movie that loves movies and yeah. uh, you know, what's, what speaks to you more than that. Yeah. And, and just uh, the, the physicality, physical comedy is, is one of the things that impresses me the absolute most mm-hmm. in, uh, in movies and it's something that 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 is so cinematic it we don't we we've come to not think of it as much as cinematic in a world where where visual effects and and quick editing does so much but but man just watching someone like keaton pull those stunts off uh on screen it's it's amazing no i mean movies are about motion and so dancing fighting and Slapstick comedy are just the three of the most cinematic things that there are. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you uh, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest and grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when we return for another pairing of new and old, looking at Steven Soderbergh's 2021 release, No Sudden Moves, and how it relates to noir, heists, and the audio industry by also going back to Paul Schrader's 1978 movie, Blue Collar. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>